Well, O church, if you would open to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 14 through 16 again, and next week again. So we'll do three weeks on this little section here. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14, this is God's Word. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so, Lord Jesus, the godly one, we come to you and we pray in your name. Because you are all these things. Because you are the one who came down from heaven and who goes back up into heaven and who will come again. Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage, we would see more of the glory of who you are. We pray your Holy Spirit would come and help us open our eyes, uh, revive life into our hearts and souls. Make us to care about the things that we must care about. Lord, we ask that you would minister to us through the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come again to this passage. Uh, it's a unique Advent passage, so we're spending three weeks on it. Um, today, I want to divide my time that I have up into two parts and kind of take half our time and look at these six uh, glorious confessions of Christ that we see there in verse 16. But I want to begin by focusing uh, on what we began to look at last week with, uh, we could even call this the church's first Christmas carol. Uh, the church's first Christmas carol. I argued last week that this is an early creedal statement that Paul's quoting. Um, and that there is good reason to believe, and many do, that this is uh, a carol, a, a hymn, uh, that they would actually, they sung this creed. And so I'm not going to reteach and give all the arguments I gave last week, but you can see how even in your Bible, it's indented, it's in quotes. He's clearly quoting something here. Uh, it seems that he's quoting something that they are confessing. He says in verse 16, we confess. And so he's quoting something that they uh, confess as a church, and it seems there's rhythmic patterns in this, which leads many to believe this was sung, not just quoted. There was music that would have gone to this. So again, I'm not going to get into all those arguments again this week, but I do think it's clear this is a creed, and it was put to music, and Paul's quoting it to Timothy. Now, here's why I want to pause here and linger another week on this, um, because this is not the only time Paul's quoting to Timothy from a creed, uh, or one that would have been sung five times at least. Uh, we see Paul quoting to Timothy uh, from a creed or confession just in First and Second Timothy alone. So we see 
Uh, we, we looked at this one a few weeks ago, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. We have our passage, 1 Timothy 3, 16. We have 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Uh, then if you go a few verses forward into 15 and 16, that as well. And then 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, five times. In 1 and in 2 Timothy, Paul is quoting to Timothy from a creed. And many of these, it looks like, would have had music behind them. That's not insignificant. And I want to bring it to our attention and, and maybe just start with this sentence. Every time, uh, from my study at least, uh, that I've seen historically, that the church has been healthy, that the church has been mature, they have made good use of hymns, creeds, and confessions for the discipleship of the church. So in discipling the church as part of discipleship, in the healthiest moments in the history of the church, they've made good use of creeds, confessions, and hymns for discipleship. Um, now, I know immediately that makes many Baptists uncomfortable, at least modern Baptists, not the old Baptists, but the modern Baptists, because in many Baptists and just evangelical circles, uh, the, the, the only creed that people know is we have no creed except the Bible, uh, which sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds great. The problem is uh, that in and of itself is a creedal statement. We have no creed, but the Bible is a creedal statement. Um, if you were to go to you know, a, a non-denominational church, say down the road, and and you ask them, what's your creed or what is your confession? What do you hold to? Is there, they, would, they would likely say, well, we, we have the Bible. That's our creed. Um, we don't get into these doctrines or state these type things. But if you ask them, well, what do you believe about you know, women preaching? What do you believe about tongues or prophecy? What do you believe about Israel? They have doctrines. And you will find out quickly they have already thought through these issues and they have beliefs that that church teaches and holds to. And so the reality is every church has a set of beliefs they hold to. Uh, some write them down and some don't. Some churches write them down so they can be open and honest and publicly confess those beliefs so that those beliefs can be scrutinized and tested by others. And others don't write them down, but you will eventually find out if you're in that church. Oh, they just didn't write that down, but they, did, they do actually have a belief on this or that issue. You'll find out privately uh, that, that, that that's true. So every church has a creed or confession, um, and I think it's actually quite arrogant to come to the Bible and act like we are the first Christians to ever wrestle with this verse or this verse, or what do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about the church? What do we believe about salvation? As if we're the first Christians. The, the, the first ones to ever possess the Holy Spirit and try to interpret these things. It's actually quite arrogant. I think the more humble and wise posture is to say, yes, we are to study the scriptures and figure these things out, but we're not the first. There is 2,000 years of church history that they've wrestled with the same things. As we study scripture, let's keep a close eye on what other Christians have seen as they've studied these things. Uh, if we don't do that, C.S. Lewis has a nice little phrase, and we don't want to be guilty of it. It's called chronological snobbery, where you basically assume that you and your day are the smartest and wisest Christians to ever exist, and that we could learn nothing from those before us. 
So you, you say, well, how do we know what Christians historically believed about uh, Scripture? Where would we go to figure this out? Um, the two primary places we would get historical shared Christian beliefs would be creeds and confessions and hymns, thousands of hymns. Uh, and, and so we, we need to preserve the truth of, of Scripture. In fact, I would say the, the primary job of the church as the, what's it, what's it called here, the pillar and buttress of truth is to protect and preserve Christian truth and then pass it on to the next generation. The primary way that Christians have done that historically is with writing creeds and confessions and writing hymns. Those are the things that have, have carried on truth uh, to the next generation more than anything else. And notice what I said there, uh, that hymns are confessions. I, I do believe we could say those two things are uh, are synonymous, uh, although slightly different. Let me back up and say this, though, first. Um, creeds and confessions are, and this really should go without saying, but I'm going to say it just, just in case someone needs to hear this. Creeds and confessions come under the Bible, okay? Bible, always ultimate, always above everything. Creeds, confessions, hymns, any, any other book written obviously comes under Scripture and should be scrutinized by Scripture like anything else. Um, but when a creed or a confession endures the test of time, we need to take note. Something is probably right about that. The church hasn't rejected that as false teaching. It's been continually confessed and believed by churches. There's probably a lot right going on. Same thing with a hymn. You know, we sing... It, I guess last week it was, we sang uh, two very old hymns. One of those was at least 1,600 years old. Okay, for a hymn to be sung for 1,600 years in Christian churches who hold a, a true gospel, and we all know what the gospel is, and we keep singing this thing, it's probably saying right things about Jesus, right? And so a hymn or a creed that makes it through the test of time uh, is likely uh, something that we should join in saying now, again, I want to argue, and I want to make, I guess maybe highlight the fact that hymns are confessions. Hymns are creeds. Or Christian songs are confessions and creeds. I mean, really, if you, if you remove the music, a song is a creedal statement. It's a short confession or statement of what a church believes and repeatedly confesses together. So I have been um, in Christian circles long enough that I've heard many people who are uncomfortable, they'll say things like, I'm uncomfortable with uh, a church repeating a creed or making a creedal confession or something like that. I'm uncomfortable with that. And you ask them, well, are you uncomfortable with the church singing a song? Of course not. Why would, why would I be concerned about a church singing a song? Well, it's like, well, what if you remove the music? What if you don't have any instruments and music behind it? What are, and then everybody's just saying these Christian things about what we believe about God together. Is there really any difference? What would be the difference? The music would be the difference. It's a creedal statement said corporately. And then someone goes, well, maybe, uh, I think what I'm uncomfortable with is the fact that you say it repeatedly and maybe for years. It's like, well, that's kind of what we do with many songs, 
And hymns, we sing them a lot of times, and we repeat them over and over and sing them for many, many years. And so the question then becomes, which is actually more dangerous? Um, what, what, are, what are we in risk of saying something wrong? Uh, quoting maybe the Apostles' Creed, which has been said by Christians since the fourth century, or uh, all singing a song that was written by some worship leader on his back porch in Nashville six weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, where, where could we go wrong possibly in what we're saying about God? You see what I'm saying? Th these things need to be thought through. Uh, how are songs and creeds any different? Uh, I, I believe they're both corporate confessions. That church is saying, we believe these things about God. I asked our city group um, this past week, we were talking about these things, and um, I said, what is the, what, why do we, why would we make a confession publicly? Why would we even do this? And someone yelled out, to unify us. I'm like, amen, that's the ultimate reason. Which, if you look at Paul in the New Testament, that's the primary thing in my uh, understanding of Scripture that he's concerned about in the church is unity. It's the thing he writes about more than anything else in ecclesiology or in the study of the church is the importance of unity. And I think confessions are to unify. Songs are to unify uh, the church. In other words, Paul doesn't uh, gather the church and, and just say, hey guys, I just don't want you to fight anymore as the ultimate way to get rid of disunity. They don't uh, gather and do a big kumbaya session where everybody gives hugs and makes verbal commitments. We're, not, we're just not going to fight about anything. That's not what they do. They actually historically wrote creeds and confessions. The primary example of this would be the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, a Presbyterian and a Baptist confession, both written in the 17th century. And when you read both documents next to each other, you don't really notice the differences, you notice how much unity there is between them. Uh, these things were for the purpose of unity. Now, I know some of y'all are already going, Pastor, why are we talking about creeds and confessions this long? Is this really, uh, is this really necessary? And I would say that we're talking about it because the Bible does. Please understand, when we, when we mention creeds and confessions, we're not saying, okay, at some point we just got tired of the Bible. We got tired of preaching and teaching. People stopped wanting to just treat this as sufficient, and we had to write all these other documents about what we believe. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the Bible itself teaches us, as a discipleship process, the use of creeds and confessions. It's a part of biblical discipleship. It is part of the New Testament pattern uh, for discipleship. I don't believe it's optional for the church of the living God. So when Paul says to Timothy, if you'll look at verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave and the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So Paul is an inspired author. He's speaking by inspiration of the Spirit, but he's speaking plural, not singular, which means what he's saying to Timothy isn't just for Timothy or the church in Ephesus. 
This is for all churches. His, his, uh, his points of emphasis for this church in Ephesus are applicable to us. In other words, he's giving all of us a master class on ecclesiology, on the study of the church for every church in all of time and telling us what we should emphasize. So when he talks about gender roles and men and women and their, uh, their, uh, the, the gender distinctions in the church, that applies to our church as it did to the church in Ephesus. Same with elders and deacons, same now uh, with the centrality of uh, preaching and teaching he'll get into in coming weeks, but right now these confessions. And so here, here's the reality. Whether a church wants to admit it or not, and most wouldn't admit it and wouldn't even be aware of this, I would say, but when they gather today, they are gathering to make confessions of faith publicly. They're gathering to recite creeds with music. That's what singing is corporately. Uh, that, it's, not a, it's not a question of if there's certain churches in Pensacola that will recite creedal statements about their beliefs about God. Everybody's doing that. That's what singing is corporately. The question is, are we saying the right things about God or not? What are we saying that we believe about the Lord? And so, uh, when preaching is happening, when teaching is happening, God is speaking to us. We believe that we speak to God through prayer and through confessions or singing. We're speaking to God. It's this interaction, communication between us and God. I'm talking about discipleship. This, this is biblical discipleship. I know that's not where this goes in people's minds necessarily oftentimes because the category that many people have when it comes to Christian discipleship is uh, if you ask them, are you being discipled? And they go, well, I'm not really meeting with anybody for coffee in a Bible study right now. You know, therefore, I'm not being discipled because we have that little category for discipleship. One-on-one, -on -one, somebody's mentoring me, I'm being discipled or I'm not being discipled. Rather than how Paul is teaching Timothy, where discipleship is largely a corporate endeavor. So let me, let me put it like this. If you have, let's say, person one, faithfully, week by week, month after month, gathering with the church, worshiping the Lord in all the ways that we worship the Lord together as a church. And that person is weakly faithful to that, but they're not meeting one-on-one -on -one with another individual. That's person one. Person two, not gathering with the church, not worshiping God corporately in all the ways uh, that we do, but they are meeting every week with someone privately. Which person is is uh, following the path of biblical discipleship as the New Testament reveals it. I would say I could give hundreds of verses to say person one who's showing up at church every week and worshiping the Lord is following the biblical pattern for discipleship, even if they don't meet one-on-one -on -one with somebody. But this person over here, I can't find one verse that they're following the biblical pattern of discipleship. Maybe they're being evangelized, but that's not the biblical pattern of discipleship. Now, I'm not saying... Uh, that, that, uh, that there's no place to meet one-on-one -on -one with somebody or that this is wrong or it certainly has a place. But if we're talking about the New Testament emphasis for discipleship, it is largely corporate. And therefore, what we confess together matters and is a part of our discipleship uh, in the local church. 
And I just challenge you to study that out if you have not yet. And here's one passage that I would point us to, a central passage. Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You hear it? Confessing, centrality of confession with the gathering and the not neglecting of the gathering of ourselves together. Now here, let me just, I'm going to linger just for a minute or two more on the, the singing portion here. How different is what I'm saying regarding singing in the church than modern discussions on worship music in churches that are largely just uh, in the emotional realm. I mean, many people are actually struggle. Maybe today you struggled. I mean, our, our, if our um, sound messes up, does that, should that in any way stop us from making a confession about what we believe about the Lord? No, it, it should not hinder in any way, actually. Now, would it mess up your emotions if you're trying to get certain feelings out of a song and, and you need that, you know, to be able to sing? Yeah, it could actually hinder you greatly if that's, if that's what you're doing. But if you're making a confession about what you believe about God to uh, a song melody, it shouldn't hinder at all whether there's a band up here or not, whether the music works right or the mics do or don't, right? But that's a completely different way to come at corporate singing. But it seems that this is what the early church was doing. Um, and, and think about, I mean, what if you said to your, what, what if you, uh, said to your boss at work, you know, boss, I, I know you wanted me to make that phone call or to have that meeting. I just, I just wasn't really feeling in the mood. You know, it just, it just, I didn't feel right uh, in order to do that. I mean, your boss would look at you like you're crazy. If he didn't fire you, he, he, he would, he has no categories for someone saying, I didn't do this particular task because I didn't feel like it. But yet, Christians, blood-bought Christians, can walk into a corporate gathering and say, I, didn't, I just didn't sing today because I wasn't feeling in the mood. I, did, I just didn't really like the song. Therefore, I didn't make the confession. You see how, how off this is. Um, I imagine if Timothy wrote back to Paul and said, you know, what if, the, what if the church in Ephesus doesn't feel like confessing you in song? <laughs> I, w- I would imagine Paul would say something like, what does feeling have to do with it? God is worthy to be confessed. Tell them they've been commanded to sing and to confess me even in song. Um, th- this is why for the, I've been saying for the last two years to... Um, to some of the leaders that are kind of given a twofold vision for growth in our corporate singing, uh, step one, let's just sing loud. Can we just confess all these truths about what we believe about God really loud and confidently? Step one, in, in our improving of our singing. Step two, let's try to make it sound good. <laughs> when we make this confession, let's, let's let our voices actually be edifying and make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then hopefully emotions can catch up after we start doing that. And then our corporate singing uh, goes in the direction of, of edifying and honoring to the Lord. 
Now, let's transition here and, and ask, what is this church confessing in song? And look at, at the, the way it's written. He calls it the mystery of godliness. When you see that, that phrase, uh, mystery of godliness, I, I mean, our modern categories don't do much with this. Like, I, I remember the first time I ever read this, I thought what was going to come after this mystery of godliness was a bunch of instructions on how to live godly. Like things you shouldn't do, things you should do. Like the mystery is whatever list of things he's about to give me to do or not do. That's not what comes after this phrase, mystery of godliness. What does he do? He just begins to describe Christ and everything that Christ has done. And he calls it the mystery of godliness, which shows us godliness isn't first about us. It's first about God. It's first about Jesus who perfectly embodied God-likeness. So let me be clear on this, and this isn't really a debatable thing I'm about to say. I think it's quite clear here in this text. You can't imitate this type of godliness that's being described here. This isn't something that we can imitate The godliness of Christ revealed here isn't something to imitate. All you can do is marvel at it. All you can do is is praise God for what He has done in His Son. You can only worship God because of it. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I think this this had to be sung by the early church. What are you going to do? Just say it? Just repeat the words. I mean, this thing deserves to be sung. It's like Paul in, in, uh, in Romans 11. He, he goes 11 chapters of describing all these glories that are in Christ, and then he just bursts out and this doxological praise from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. I mean, there's certain things that you see about God and about Christ that are so glorious. You can only sing them. You can only offer up a sacrifice of praise. There's nothing else that would even be appropriate to do. When you lose sight of yourself and you begin to marvel at Christ's godliness, and and then when you begin to put your mind on Christ, think about who He is, forget about yourself, you're worshiping at that moment. And you know what happens when we worship? I love this this way to, to sum it up. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. So as you begin to think great thoughts and write thoughts about Christ, and you begin to worship Him, you become godly like Him. So there is something practical here. This does change us at a personal level, but not because we're trying to do a list of things, but because we're looking at what Christ has already done for us. So to that end, let's meditate for a few minutes on these six truths. I'm going to go over these very quickly this morning. Uh, Pastor Kent's going to come back next week and delve into these deeper. Here's the first one. It says, He was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. That's what Christmas and Advent is about. The Logos uh, entering into and becoming Sark's flesh. The the eternal God who had no beginning 
entering into time and space, the Son of God adding to His divinity humanity. And this is absolutely, you could get almost calloused hearing that, but think of what we're saying. It really is crazy to most of the world. I mean, Muslims and Orthodox Jews would say the Creator God could never defile Himself with human flesh. Now, Christians know he didn't defile himself with human flesh because he was born of a virgin and conceived of a Holy Spirit, so he didn't receive a sinful, defiled flesh like all of us with two sinful parents. He's the firstborn of a, of a new creation. He is a different type of flesh. He's the firstborn of a new type of humanity. The Gnostics rejected the incarnation because they believed the flesh was evil. But again, Christians know that, it, that Jesus had to take on flesh because he was to be the mediator between God and man. And so for, in order for him to mediate between holy God and sinful man, he had to become man. His fleshliness, his physicality was 100% necessary in order for that mediatorial work to occur. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, so he's fully God, but born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that, he might, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he had to become like the first Adam to redeem Adam's fallen race. He had to become the greater Israel under the law so that he could do what Israel could never do. And he did all of it and had to do all of it in the flesh. 1 John 4, 2 says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John 1, 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son, from the Father. And it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he, that is Jesus, has made him known. That's what I just keep saying to my kids in the living room in our family devotions is, God has revealed himself. The invisible God is visible. This is who Jesus is. He is making God known to us. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Paul tells Timothy, the first and, and, and frontline issue the church is going to confess together is the Son of God took on flesh. He manifested God to us in the body of a man. This is the central and first thing that has now been revealed. It was hidden and has now been revealed in Christ. Godliness, Godlikeness, deity is now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to John Calvin says this, Jesus Christ, true God from before all everlastingness. Now it is said that he was made manifest in the flesh. By this word flesh, Paul is teaching that Christ put on our nature. But, it, but he shows by this word manifest that there are two natures in him. Not that there is the one Jesus, which is God, and another Jesus Christ, which is man. But we must know him only God and man. 
So, so Jesus never stopped being God, but he added to his divinity humanity. He added to his divinity humanity. And think of the humanity and what he did in his humanity. Think of, what, think of this human body and what he endured with this. He goes, even in those last moments of suffering in his life, he receives a kiss from his betrayer on his actual physical cheek. He's punched in the face and spit upon. Somebody's face actually hit his... When his back was flogged, it tore sheds, uh, shreds of bones and ligaments begin to be exposed... He dealt with real excruciating pain. The drops of blood that came from his face revealed that he, in his, real, in his physical nervous system, he was truly being affected. It says Christ suffered in the flesh, 1 Peter 4.1. When his body was nailed to a Roman cross of wood, he was really suspended by hands and feet with real nails. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. A real body. And then that real corpse, that body, that fleshly body was then taken and put in a tomb. To three days later, He would then walk out of that tomb. Physically walk out of the tomb. And he would appear to eyewitnesses before then ascending back to heaven physically, where he sits today at the right hand of the Father. And that resurrection right there is the vindication of the Spirit, which is the next thing he says here. We remember uh, Jesus did not die as a hero. I know we think he's a hero, and he is our hero. He was not a hero uh, when he died, he died as a criminal. He was an enemy to the Jewish people and to the Roman Empire. His legal charges were a blasphemer and an insurrectionist. Those charges, uh, in our eyes at least, were refuted, utterly refuted, at his resurrection. His resurrection was the vindication by the Spirit that he is who he said he was and who Scripture described him to be. Now, there, it's true and again, can, can get into this more next week. It, it is true that at his conception, at his birth, um, there is a vindicating of who Jesus is. Especially as uh, the Holy Spirit is granting faith to Mary, granting faith to Joseph, granting faith to the wise men, to the shepherds. People are believing by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. He's being vindicated in the eyes of many, even at his birth. At his baptism, the Spirit comes down as a dove. Uh, the, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The, the, it says the Spirit put on Christ his power for preaching and ministry. He cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. All his earthly ministry, he did as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. But, I think to this phrase, ultimately, we should see the vindication by the Spirit happening at the resurrection. I say that primarily from Romans 1.3, which says, Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the capital S, Spirit of Holiness, 
by his resurrection from the dead. And so when Jesus in his life said, I am the resurrection and the life, at his resurrection, that phrase was vindicated. He is the resurrection and the life. Leads to this phrase, seen by angels, which reminds us that seeing the risen Christ was not limited to human eyes. He was seen by angels. We, we think of the, the women as the first eyewitnesses to see Jesus resurrected. Well, if we're talking about human eyewitnesses, that's true. But if we're just talking about any eyewitnesses, it was the angels. They were the first eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. They greeted the women and disciples at the tomb saying, he's not here, he's risen. It was the angels that first witnessed the resurrected Christ. They longed for the Christ. Guys, Christianity is, is profoundly historical. People really did see him in history, resurrected in the flesh. We can never forget that. But Christianity is also supernatural. And when Christ rose, the angels put their eyes on him. And he was witnessed by angels. And notice the word angels here is how it's translated. You could also translate it messengers, which is what angels means. And that really leads to these last three phrases, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. I'm just going to put these together for sake of time and handle them together. Um, the church's proclamation to the nations, uh, it is good news. It is good news of great joy. But it's not good news just because a baby was born who would grow up to be a really nice guy and save the planet. You know, it, it's good news, the proclamation to the nations, because this one who would be born would, would then grow and he would bring salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. The church's proclamation to the nations is this. If Christ came the first time, lived, died, resurrected, there's sufficient proof that he's coming again to judge and to save. That's good news. It is actually, it is actually very good news. Uh, Pastor Kent reminded me um, this week, we were, we were talking, and I, I forget more than I can remember but uh, th that song by Isaac Watts, I'd completely forgotten that Joy to the World um, wasn't actually, and I think there's good reason to believe Joy to the World, although it was the most uh, printed and uh, popular Christmas hymn in the 20th century, it wasn't actually originally written about Christmas or about the first advent, but it was, it was actually written about the second coming of Christ. Joy to the world, hate to break it to you, was likely about the second coming of Christ. Um, now, why call it joy to the world? That Christ is coming again. We're not talking about the first one. Why? How is the second one uh, joy to the world? Well, listen to these lyrics. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Present ongoing tense there, not past tense. Let the earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, present tense, not future, not that he's going to reign, he does reign, 
let men their songs employ. Repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Why joy? Well, look at the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Anybody feel like sins and sorrows just keep growing in your own life, in the world? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. So why is not just the first coming good news, but the second coming is good news? Because as far as the curse is found, he is coming to make his blessings flow. He's coming, in other words, to make everything wrong right. And you go, well, that's good news. He's going to get rid of all the evil people. And then you remember, oh, wait a second. I'm one of those. G.K. Chesterton uh, said something relevant here. Uh, many of you know he was called the greatest writer of the 20th century, uh, published like 4,000 essays, wrote over 100, 200 books or something. Right before the Second World War, uh, in Great Britain, uh, there was a leading uh, newspaper called uh, The Times, and they had an essay competition where they invited some of the greatest thinkers of that day to write an essay on, on this topic. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? So G.K. Chesterton was invited to, to do this. He takes up the challenge. Uh, this renowned author thought deeply about the question, what is wrong with the world? He finally put his pen to paper and he wrote this. Dear sirs, I am. Signed sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That right there is why we love Jesus. Because the one who comes to judge is the one that comes to save. And we need saving. I need saving. I'm thankful for the first and second coming of Christ. Because I know who I am. And I know when light comes down into the darkness, I'm actually part of that darkness. But praise the Lord if you bow the knee to that one who is light, that judge and Savior. He brings you up with Him. He raises you up with Him to eternal life. Uh, this is why we have every reason to sing, to gather weekly all through the year, confess how good Christ is but especially at Christmas and especially at the table. Let's, let's go to the table. Let's renew our minds. You know, Paul says uh, to proclaim his death until he comes. So as you come to the table, you're proclaiming the death of Christ. You're proclaiming there was one godly one, this mystery of godliness revealed, and it's not me. It's Jesus Christ. We come to the table as those who Christ has saved, and who He is coming back to receive. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Son, our only hope, our living hope, You call Him, because He lives. He died and He lives forevermore. And Lord, so all of those who will live forever, find our life in Him and only in Him. 
We find our godliness in Him. He is the mystery of godliness now revealed. We praise You, Jesus, that the Gospel is not that we have to clean our lives up and become godly so that we can one day hope we can go to heaven. We thank You that You sent godliness down to us in the person of Your Son. And You lived the life we could not live. And You substituted Your life in place of ours on the cross. And You took the judgment that we deserve. And You raised to life. And You were vindicated by the Spirit. And You were seen by angels. And You've been proclaimed to the nations. And Lord, You've been taken up into glory. And we, we think it's good news that You're going to come again. And so, Lord, would you renew our faith and strengthen us at the table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.